Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, welcome. My name is Scott. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's my, my joy, my honor, my privilege to go to open up God's Word with you this morning. And um, it's just glad to, I'm just glad to be here. Uh, hopefully, you guys are as well, although I know that there's definitely COVID that's going around. And so, um, for those of you who have to be online this morning, we're glad that you're here uh, in the Spirit uh, while we are here in person. Uh, speaking of being in person, um, how many of you guys were here yesterday in this very place for the Women's Brunch? Yeah, great time. Uh, I wasn't there, obviously, but uh, uh, from what I understand, there are about 130 of you who gathered together to enjoy good food and fellowship and uh, have, hear some great teaching from Melissa and then a, a story of God's redeeming grace and um, just had a great time together. I, I was talking to my wife Last night, uh, I'm on our date, and she's like, oh, Scott, it was so good. I cried like half the time. I'm like, that does not sound good to me at all, but I'm glad. Actually, I was noticing this this morning, so there's this, there's this thing of tissues right here uh, for the speaker, I guess, yesterday, just in case. Um, but just by FYI, did, uh, for those of you men who are like, man, when's our time? Not to cry, although if you do cry, that's fine. Um, but we're going to have a men's retreat the last weekend in March, and so would encourage you to uh, prioritize that weekend. Um, registrations, I think, are going to open up this week. And so you can take a look there online to sign up for that. It'll be March 25th to the 27th, and a great time together. All right, let's go ahead and jump into God's Word. And if you are a guest with us, you've actually come at a great time. We've been making our way through the book of Romans, a series that we've entitled From Rags to Righteous. And we are hitting a transition point this morning with chapter 6. And so just to kind of recap for all of us where we've been so far, uh, this letter from the Apostle Paul to the church at Rome, the first really two and a half chapters or so, a big banner that you can kind of put over that, which is condemnation. Uh, Probably not the banner that you want to be under, but all of us are under that. Um, Even we heard last week, the first man, Adam, came in, brought sin into the world, and as a result, all of us are under that condemnation of sin. Uh, God is holy, he's righteous, he's perfect, Um, he cannot allow sin into his presence, and he must punish rebellion against him. And so whether we've rebelled in small ways or big ways, all of us are deserving of God's judgment. We are under that banner of condemnation. As Romans 3 says, there is none righteous, no, not one. Really bad news. But thankfully, that's not the end of God's story. As we've been making our way through the book of Romans, we transition into a second banner at the end of chapter 3 and on to 4 and 5. And the second banner is, big word, justification, which means to be declared righteous. And this second Adam, as we looked at last week, this second man, this God-man, Jesus comes, and he does what the first Adam could not do. He did everything perfectly for 33 years. He loved perfectly. He led perfectly. He cared for people perfectly. He taught perfectly, forgave perfectly. He had compassion on people perfectly. And then alongside of that, he fulfilled every requirement of the Mosaic law that was required for God's people to follow. And at the end of his 33 years, he was still under that banner of justification, He did not deserve condemnation, but he chose, because he loves his people so much, he chose to bring himself under that banner of condemnation so that for all those who trust in him, we could be brought under this banner of justification. So that when the Father looks down on us, he doesn't see our sin, he sees the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross for us. In essence, As Martin Luther calls it, he calls it the great exchange. So we give to Jesus our sin. He dies for it. 
And in exchange, he gives to us his righteousness, and we enjoy all the rights and the privileges that come from that righteousness. A good way to think about justification is, um, if you guys are familiar with the story of Jesus being baptized. So he comes publicly, he starts his ministry, and uh, he's in front of a lot of people. Uh, We're there with John the Baptist about to be baptized, and then all of a sudden the clouds depart. Uh, they, they kind of set apart, and the Spirit of God descends down on Jesus like a dove, and then the Father speaks. And so you get the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and they're all agreeing with this message that's about to be proclaimed. And it is this This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And that declaration is a declaration of justification. That from the very beginning of time, Jesus has enjoyed fellowship with his father. He's enjoyed love from his father. The father is pleased with him. The father has always welcomed him into his presence. And now that declaration and all those blessings are given to us. Not because we deserve it, not because we pay for it, simply by grace through faith. When God sees us, he doesn't see our sin. He says, I love you because of my son, Jesus. I die. I, 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 get to, I get to just pour out my grace and my mercy upon you. you. You're always welcomed into my presence. I accept you. I'm never going to cast you out. The same affection that I have for my son, Jesus, is the same affection and love that I have for you. It's amazing. That's justification. And the crazy thing, though, is that it all comes by grace through faith. It's not by works. Christianity is the only religion where salvation is not achieved. It's received. And that brings us now to chapter 6, another sort of banner that we're going to look at for a lot of time. Uh, it's the banner of sanctification. Big word. Uh, so justification is to be declared righteous. Sanctification means to become more righteous, to become more like Jesus, to be set apart for God, to follow after him. And to kind of transition into this, we're actually going to go back to chapter 5 very briefly Um, Because there's this false teaching that's going on in the church at Rome. And it goes like this. Let me go ahead and read to you uh, verse 19 and 20 and kind of give you an idea. Verse 19 says, For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, meaning Adam, condemnation, okay, under that banner of condemnation, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. So through Jesus, we're under that banner of justification. And then he goes on. He says, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So the purpose, one of the purposes of God's law is to expose our sin, to help us to see like how far short we fall of God's glory. Sin means to miss the mark. And as you're spending time in God's word and you're understanding God's character more and more, you're like, man, I really, I really messed up a lot, even more so than I realized before. And so in essence, it's kind of like sin is just increasing, But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, meaning God's grace covers over all of that sin, past, present, and even our future sin. This is the amazing good news of the gospel. It's crazy. It's wonderful. It's beautiful. But then what happens is we can very easily be tempted to to say what some of the false teachers in the church at Rome were saying. Well, well, if I'm saved by grace and not by my works, then it doesn't matter really what I do. I can just do whatever I want. I can keep on sinning. Or even worse, well, if grace increases when my sin increases, well, then I just could sin. I should sin even more so, so that God's grace can really be big. And people can look at my life and be like, wow, God really is gracious that he would 
save you, right? So Paul is going to answer this question by sort of covering a big topic, what we call sanctification, where, okay, so if I'm really justified in God's sight, how should I live? Why don't you guys stand with me? We're going to look at this passage together. It's kind of a lengthy, very deep passage. Romans chapter 6, starting in verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For, well, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Let's pray. God, we just want to come to you this morning and we pray that you would sink the truth of your word deep into our soul. I know that all of us, we struggle with sin. Uh, we fail to follow you the way that you call us to, and we are sorry for that. But, but God, I pray that through your scripture this morning that you would empower us, that you would help us to become more and more like Jesus. We pray that you would do that for our good and ultimately for the glory of your name. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys can take your seats, and as you do... Uh, today's sermon is simply entitled, In Christ, In Christ. And this phrase is used by the Apostle Paul a lot, not just in Romans, but in other letters as well. And it has to do with this doctrine called union with Christ. And uh, this idea of being united or in union with Christ, it has a lot of different um, a lot of different ways to understand it and how it should impact our lives. But we're going to look at three truth specifically this morning that relate to our union with Christ. And the first truth is this, uh, that we are united with Christ. We're going to explore that. And you can kind of put next to that relationally. Number two, truth number two is we died to sin. You can kind of put that next to that experientially. And then number three, we are alive to God. And you can put, can put it next to that transformationally. Okay, so we're united with Christ. We died to sin, we are alive to God. And then we're going to kind of take these big truths and we're going to explore really one application point at the end. So here we go. Truth number one, we are united with Christ. This, we're going to talk about our relational union with Christ. Um, this word union or being in Christ uh, is actually ex- is described here in this passage of scripture in two kind of key ways. 
Now, the first look down at verse 5. It says, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. That word united or union, it's a horticultural term. And it refers to being grafted into the root. And if you guys are familiar with that terminology, Paul uses it elsewhere. And also Jesus himself in John 15, um, he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. And so what happens for us when we become a Christian is we are united with Christ. We are brought into union with him. So we were once dead branches, can do, do nothing good. And we are united or grafted into the vine. We are brought into relationship with Jesus. We are joined to him. We're placed into him. And this union is twofold. As John 15 talks about, every believer is brought into Christ. And Christ is brought into every believer by the work of the Spirit. So we couldn't be any more closely identified with Christ. He is in us, we are in him. And when we become a Christian, it's a a spiritual mystery for sure, but it's true that we are brought into union with him relationally. Not only that, but there's a second word to describe this union, and it's the word that you're probably familiar with, baptized or baptism. We're familiar with that because we see it whenever somebody comes to faith in Christ and they are baptized in water, but that's actually not what it's talking about here. This is not water baptism, this is the Spirit's baptism. And so what the Spirit of God does is he baptizes us into Christ. Baptism means to be immersed, to be plunged, to be identified with, to be brought into. And so that's why we immerse people when we baptize. They, They go all the way down into the water as a picture of being completely immersed into Christ, meaning all of your life is brought into Christ's. You are now united with him. You're immersed into him. You're brought into a living, breathing relationship with him. And so when you and I become a Christian, we're not just justified. We're not just declared righteous. We don't just have a legal declaration over us. We are also brought into a living relationship with Christ as well. And this relationship never ends. It's amazing. Let me kind of illustrate this um, in this way. Paul's, Paul's saying, okay, listen, I want you to understand. You've been brought into a relationship with him, so you shouldn't continue to sin. Don't go back. You're brought into a living, vibrant relationship with him. And I want to share with you kind of an illustration of relationship. So I have to admit this. Uh, before, Julia had another girlfriend. Uh, see, when I was in the second grade, there was this girl she wrote a note to me, uh, passed through a few other girls, and eventually got to me. And on this note, it said, will you go out with me? Check yes, no, or maybe. You guys ever got one of those? All right. So I'm like, go out. What does this mean? So I, I talked to Shannon Fontenot, uh, who's my buddy, my best friend at recess. And he's like, I don't know. I don't know what it means to go out. Where do you go? I don't know. He's like, I know who does, though. Tucker Savon. By the way, I grew up in Louisiana. That's why I got all these Cajun names. Fontenot, Savon, Fruget. Anyway, so we go talk to Tucker. And Shannon's like, Tucker knows. He knows about girls. So we went over to Tucker, and Tucker's like, oh, man, it's simple. If you just check off yes, uh, I'll bring the note back to, to Amy. And uh, you, she'll wave at you, and you wave at her. And then 
The girls kind of giggle, and that's it. I'm like, well, that sounds easy enough. Check yes. So every day at recess, I'd wave at her, see little giggles, she wave back, and that was it. I was like, this is pretty easy. I like this, no problem. Just going out, piece of cake. Until two weeks later when I get another note that said, I'm breaking up with you. And I'm like, what? <laughs> what did I do wrong? I thought we had a good thing going. All right, let me, let me illustrate another way of a relationship. Another person, my, my real girlfriend, my wife, Julia, uh, we met super excited, super joy-filled as I got to spend time with her. And then it comes to a culmination on our wedding day when the doors open up and I see her in her beautiful gown in front of all these people. Some of you guys were there as well. And uh, she's coming down the aisle, and I've got tears coming. I had some tissues, maybe. Um, and I'm just overwhelmed. I'm overwhelmed with love and affection for her, that she would want to be united with me. And we made vows in front of people that said, I'm going to be with you forever. I'm going to be with you till death do us part. Like, I'm, I'm united with you. I'm, I'm committed to you. I want to grow in relationship with you. And for the last 20 years, uh, our relationship has been really sweet. Now, what type of relationship do you think God is inviting you into? Do you think he wants you to just have a, pa- a casual glance periodically? Or do you think you've really been united with Christ, brought into a relationship with him, where an I becomes now a we? We're in this together. Think back to the invitation from Isaiah 55 that we looked at a few weeks ago. God says, come and enjoy me. Listen to me, talk to me, relate to me. And the Apostle Paul says, guys, do you get it? When you were justified, you were also united to Christ. You were brought into a living, breathing relationship with him. What does your relationship with Jesus look like? That's truth number one. We are united with Christ. Truth number two. We're not only brought into union with Christ relationally, but we are also brought into his death. We died to sin. I'm kind of put next to that experientially. We're going to read a few verses. This is it's kind of complicated a little bit, but I, I pray that it'll uh, help, will help us understand it as we walk through it. We'll start in verse 2. It says, Do you not know, or excuse me, uh, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. Down in verse 5, it says, We've been united with him in a death like his. Uh, Verse 7, For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe also live with him. So this union with Christ is not only relational, it's also experiential. In other words, whatever is true of Jesus is also true of us. In a mysterious way, when Christ died and we believed in him, we died. In essence, we were kind of transported back 2,000 years ago so that when Christ died, we died with him. We were crucified with him. We died. Past tense, by the way. Yes, we are to continue to put sin to death, but we really did die. And as verse 10 says, Christ died once for all, meaning we don't have to die any longer. Christ died on our behalf, and now we are brought experientially into that death. Uh, There was a guy who was traveling in Israel, 
And he was at uh, Golgotha, where Jesus was crucified. And um, I've actually been there with my wife, Julia, and it's, it's, a, it's a real sobering time, for sure, as we consider Christ's death. And the tour guide um, said, has anybody ever been here before? And he said, I have. And he said, well, when, when did you visit before? And he said, I was here 2,000 years ago. By faith, he put his faith in Jesus. And when Jesus died, he died. Now, what does that really mean, though? What does it mean that we died with Jesus? Um, we're going to talk about three things. For one, the first thing we talk about a lot, actually, one is we died to sin's punishment. Okay, we're not going to talk about this too much because we've already covered it several times in these chapters. Uh, but the point is this, that when Jesus died for the punishment of sin, when he was under that banner of condemnation, we were brought into that death. When Jesus absorbed the wrath of God against our sin, we died with Christ. So we're no longer condemned if we're brought into union with Christ. We don't have to listen to the lies of the enemy. He says, oh, well, you still have to pay for your sin. No, Christ paid for your sin. You really did die with Christ. And now your future is bright. You have eternal life. No longer eternal death. Jesus paid the price for you. But now Paul introduces a new concept here. Not just we died to sin's punishment, but we also died to sin's power. Look at verse 6. It says, um, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. And then down in verse 9, talking about Christ, he says, death no longer has dominion over him. So enslavement, dominion, what is this talking about? It means that before we were believers, we were under a rule and reign of sin. We were under its power. Before conversion, we could not pursue anything except sin. But then when we believed in Christ, something supernatural happened. We died. We were set free from the rule and reign of sin. Notice it's past tense. We died. We were brought into personal union with Christ, and then we were delivered from the domineering power of sin in our lives. Sin is no longer our master. Now, yes, sin is still alive in us. That's why it says we've got to bring the body of sin to nothing. There still is this sin that's alive in us, but it's no longer the driving force in your, in my life. If we put our faith in Christ, it no longer holds us captive. Now, we're not teaching perfectionism here that somehow we can be perfect in this life, but there was a decisive death that really did take place when we put our faith in Jesus. The tyranny of sin is gone. In other words, you don't have to obey sin any longer. That is the biggest lie of the enemy. He says, oh, you, you're just stuck in sin. No, we're not. This is why the apostle Paul says this in verse 2. He says, by no means, by no means, how can we, <laughs> do you not know that, oh, excuse me, by no means, how can we who died to sin still live in it? So Paul in essence says, you're free. You're, you're no longer under the reign of sin. You don't have to live in it meaning that you're continually pursuing it, that you're consumed by it, that you're in its death grip. No, Jesus, when he died, he set you free. Paul says the prison door has been opened. 
You're no longer a captive. You are free, so walk out. Guys, many of us, we have experienced some of that freedom in our lives, right? And yet God wants more for us. Apostle Paul, he says in verse 6, he says, We know that our old self was crucified with him. That old self refers to that person that we used to be. Uh, The person that once followed the sinful desires and worldly passions and worldly perspectives who always said yes to sin. And Paul says that person was crucified, dead, buried. That's no longer your core identity if you are in Christ. Look at 1 Corinthians 6. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So as believers, our identity has changed. Such were some of you. Your old self is gone. Our old identity is gone. That's not who we are any longer. We've got a new identity. John Newton, he was a wretched man. Uh, He captained slave ships. He uh, was even uh, a big investor in the slave trade. Then he came to know Jesus Christ, and he was converted by God's amazing grace, and that's what we sing, amazing grace. He wrote that song. This is what he had to say. He said, I am not what I ought to be, I'm not what I wish to be. I'm not what I hope to be. But by the cross of Jesus Christ, I am not what I was. And we're going to talk about the ongoing battle against sin in a a minute and actually in many chapters to come. But for now, I want you to hear this simple truth. I want you to receive it. You are no longer under the rule and reign of sin. It is no longer your master. Your old self was crucified. And one day, as verse 6 says, one day the body of sin might be brought to nothing as well. In other words, sin's punishment, sin's power, and one day even sin's presence will be removed. So the Apostle Paul can say a little bit later, he says that not only this body of sin be brought to nothing, but but he says that you will be united with him in a resurrection like his. Be resurrected, no more sin any longer. That was accomplished for us on the cross. All right, let's move on to truth number three. It's going to be much shorter. (laughs) It's kind of the exact opposite of what we just discussed, but I want to sink our, our, our teeth deeply into this. So in our union with Jesus, we're not only brought into union with him relationally, we're not only brought into his death experientially, But last but not least, we're also brought into his resurrection transformationally. Truth number three, we are alive to God. I want to talk to you about kind of three quick things about what this resurrection brings. Uh, First thing is this, new life. New life. Look back at verse four. We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So there's a, now a new life for those who are in Christ that's brought into us through the work of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit has made you new. You've been given a new heart. You've been given new desires. You've been given new longings. 
In the fullest sense, you and I have been made new. 2 Corinthians 5, a very familiar passage of scripture. If anyone is in Christ, he is what? A new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And so as a believer, we're not just kind of an old creation merely upgraded. No, we are, we are made new in Christ. Our old creation was crucified. It was dead. It was buried. Our old self was put to death. And now we are a new creation with new desires, new longings, new hopes, new dreams, a new identity in Christ. Remember that, that passage in 1 Corinthians 6, all those old identities, I want you to hear this, that is not who you are any longer if you're in Christ. You are now a son, you are a daughter, you are a new creation. The old has passed away. Christ's resurrection life is within you. Tim Keller says this, he says, as a Christian, I... My truest self really seeks God and loves his law and holiness. While sin remains in me with a lot of strength, it no longer controls my personality and life. When one is united to Christ, everything changes because who they are changes. There is a new me. So when a Christian sins, they're acting against their identity. They forgot who they are. When we sin, it's, it's we're forgetting who we are now in Christ. The old is gone. The new has come. Be given new life to follow after him. That leads us to the second new thing. Not only new life, but also a new master. We're going to get more into this next week as we look at the end of chapter 6. But a Christian is now no longer under the authority, under the rule and reign of Satan, sin, and death. We are now brought under a new authority, a new influence, a new master. And this master is not a sin, not sin to enslave us. This master is one who frees us. Verse uh, 14 says, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. So this master is Jesus, and he says, I, I put you now under a new rule and reign. It's my grace that's sufficient for all of your weakness. You're no longer enslaved to sin You're now brought under my authority, my kingdom, my love. Jesus, by the way, he doesn't enslave us. He frees us. He's the most free and loving person that there is to ever walk the planet. And he's invited you to follow after him, to enjoy him. But not only that, he's, he's not just our master. He's also given us that resurrection power to actually enable us to follow after him. The same resurrection power that raised Jesus from the dead enable him to obey his father completely now dwells within you and me to enable us to say no to sin and yes to righteousness, to become more and more like Jesus. So we can say no. We can say no to our old master. We don't have to say yes. Last one, at least, new trajectory. We now have a new hope. We have a new direction. We have a new peace and a bright future in store for us. And even to some extent, spiritually speaking, we are brought into that reign and rule of Christ right now. Look at Colossians chapter 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died And your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So in one sense right now, we are brought into 
this new life with Christ. We're brought into his kingdom, but then Christ's kingdom will come fully and completely, and then we will see Christ face to face. Our trajectory is set. That's why Paul is confident. He says, if you died with Christ, then you will be united with him in a resurrection like his. Even our bodies will be done away with. We'll have a new resurrection body. And Christ says, even right now, I want you to set your mind on things above where my kingdom is, not on the things of this earth that don't satisfy. I'm sure you're probably like me, though. Okay, so how does this all, like, come together? This is a lot of big truth, and I'm right there with you. This is really deep stuff. Uh, The big question, that big application question is, so how do I really change? How do I put all this into action? And the first step is this. We must reckon. And then second is we must fight. So let's look down at verse 11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. I'm going to pause right there. That word consider can also be translated reckon. So it's not just like, oh, let me consider that. Let me think about that. It's actually, let me appropriate it as true for me. It's the same word that's used when God looks upon Abraham and it says that he counted him or he reckoned him as righteous. God looked at him and he said, I count you as righteous. It is true. I'm going to treat you as such. And that's what Paul says first. He says, you are to consider yourselves dead to sin. Reckon it is true. Appropriate it is true. I'm dead to sin's punishment. I'm dead to sin's power. And even one day I'm going to be dead to sin's presence. It doesn't have the last say. Jesus does. And I'm going to reckon it that I'm alive to God. I am now a new creation. I have a new master. I have a new trajectory. Reckon it as true. Don't let your feelings declare to you something different than the facts and the truth. Yes, our feelings are powerful, but we've got to go against our feelings. Even though I feel enslaved, I am not enslaved. I'm free. Even though I feel like I have to keep saying yes to the sin, no, I can say no. My old self said yes, but now my new self, in Christ, I can say I can. Because it's Christ who lives in me. It's no longer I, but it's Christ who does the work, who enables me to reckon it as true. This is an accomplishment of our reason and our will. I'm declaring it's true. And step number two, we fight. We've got to fight. We can't be passive. Look at verse 12. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. We've still got a body of sin. We've still got passions that want us to pursue those old habits, those old things that we used to that satisfied a little bit, but not the way that Christ does. He says, we've got we to not let sin, therefore, reign in our mortal bodies. We've got to put that sin to death. As John Owen says, we'll look at this a little bit later on in uh, Romans 8, be killing sin or it will be killing you. We've got to put it to death. Do not present your members, meaning the members of your body, to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. We've got to fight against our bodies that so oftentimes want to pull us back in. And when it does, we've got to say, no, that's not true for me. I'm going to stay away from that. I'm going to repent. I'm going to turn. I'm going to bring myself back to Christ. I want to to experience his life and love. Those passions, they are strong. 
We know that, particularly for certain areas of our life, right? Every single one of us have certain weaknesses and passions that seem to pull us in. But we are to put that to death, where it says your body will be brought to nothing. It doesn't mean annihilated or destroyed. It simply means to be rendered inactive, to uh, be put out of kind of out of business. It no longer has the power that it once did. And the more and more that we say yes to Christ, the more easily it is to say no to sin. You guys know this. When you look back at your life, like, wow, look at the progress I've made. That's great. Let me do it more. Let me pursue Christ more. Those sins, it doesn't give us the fulfillment that it once did. And the way we fight is we simply don't just say no, but we also say yes. Thomas Chalmers, he says, uh, he talks about the, the, the fact that there is a, a new affection, a supreme affection that accomplishes uh, what, we can't, what we can't do on our own, where this new affection for Christ just trumps that old affection for sin. So that in Christ, we are satisfied, we are loved, we're welcomed, we're accepted, and we experience life in that relationship in a way that we never really did before from all those idols that we used to worship and go to. St. Augustine, uh, he used to have an awful problem with sexual immorality. He would say yes to that sin over and over again with anyone and everyone he could pursue. But then he became a Christian, and... uh, One day his mistress came by, one of his many mistresses, and offered him, of course, what he used to go after. And he looked at her and he said, no, thank you. And she said again, but it's I, Augustine. And Augustine responded, it is no longer I. And he walked away. So what was he saying? He was saying, I used to be that person that had to be so satisfied with that female affection No matter how destructive it was in my life, it wasn't even really about love. It was about me and what I could get, but it just never filled that black hole in my life. I was never really satisfied. It was a spiritual master, but it led me to death. But now I have a new master, and I know him, and I follow him, and I know what he thinks of me. He says, I'm free. I don't need that idol anymore. He satisfies me. He he gives me life and joy. Now, what is it for you that so oftentimes beckons you, that calls to you, that says, hey, come back to me? We need to take that same sort of description that Augustine took and said, well, okay, so I used to be the person who crumbled under criticism, but now when someone criticizes me, I'm okay because Christ has accepted me and he never criticizes me. I used to be the the person that was so afraid of the future. But now my future in Christ is secure. And I'm not afraid the way I used to be. I used to be an orphan. I used to feel like I was all left out. But Christ has welcomed me into his presence. I'm accepted. I'm loved. I'm adopted in his family. And he'll never cast me out. I used to be a person who had to do it all right in order for people to accept me. I had to earn favor with people. I had to earn their acceptance. But now, Christ and his righteousness has been given to my account, and I can simply rest. I don't have to be perfect to be accepted in his eyes. The list goes on and on. We all have struggles. We all have idols. We all have things that we look after and look to to satisfy us, but they never really do. And Christ says, let me be enough for you. 
It's not who I was. Or excuse me, that's not who I am any longer. That's who I was. I have a new identity in Christ. Now, I'm sure you probably have a lot of other questions, right? Well, well how come this change takes so long? Or uh, why can't I seem to make progress in certain areas very much? Or um, how, come I, how come my feelings just tell me that this is right, even though I know that it's wrong? When do my feelings change? Or how, how, how can I know whenever some good things have now become ultimate things and idolatrous things in my life? Guys, we're going to continue to walk through this big umbrella of sanctification in weeks to come. And so be patient. But let me just encourage you to sink your roots deeply into this passage of Scripture this week. Apply these truths to your life. And now let me leave you with a final illustration. Um, I love the scene in The Lord of the Rings where Gollum has a conversation with himself. And I don't know better for you, but I have a lot of conversation with myself. Like, no, I know I shouldn't do that, but, Right? Well, Gollum is kind of having this conversation. He's no longer under the power of the ring. And he begins to transition from bad to good, from Gollum to Schmeagol. And in this conversation with himself, Gollum is trying to convince Schmeagol that it is a bad idea to go down this new path. He says, you don't have any friends. You, you're a, you're a, no one likes you. You're a liar. You're a thief. You're a murderer. And Shmuel keeps saying to Gollum, he's like, no, I hate you. Get away from me. Go away. You guess have probably done that, right? But Gollum responds. He says, you hate me? Where would you be without me? We survived because I saved us. In other words, I've got you. This is the only way you can be satisfied is with me. But then Shmuel replies, not anymore, Gollum. Leave now and never come back in his weird voice that I can't impersonate. (laughs) Well, inside our soul, there is a battle that's raging. Sin wants to reign, right? Sin calls back to us, particularly late at night, at least for me, whispers back, come back, come back. Sin's going to lie to us. It's going to throw our past in our face. It's going to tell us that nobody cares, that, that God's too far away from you. He doesn't care from you, but sin is going to lie. We need to respond, no longer anymore, sin. Leave now. Never come back. For Oaks, God, God loves you. He died to not only take the punishment for your sin, but to die to take the power of sin away. You've been brought into a new kingdom of life and love and peace and joy. He's given his spirit to you to remind you of how much he loves you and to enable you to become more like Christ, to become more and more free, the person that God intended for you to be. He's taken everything upon himself to give you the blessings of life and life abundantly in him. He's for you. He's with you. And he will help you to become more and more like him each day until we see him face to face. So let us declare with the Apostle Paul, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound by no means? Let's pray.